So, um, with that in mind, we're going to move then this morning to Matthew chapter 5 and consider a couple of Beatitudes this morning. Actually, the last two Beatitudes. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been exploring the Sermon on the Mount together. We've started, uh, I guess it's been about six weeks now, we started processing together the, the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. We're processing the Beatitudes in, in particular. We set this all up by talking about Jesus and, and as he showed up and what he was doing, he was healing people. If we see in, in verses 23 through 25 of, Acts, or of Matthew chapter 4, he's healing people and he's, he's beginning to pull back the curtain on, on the kingdom of heaven and showing people what it is that the kingdom of heaven looks like. Um, where this sin and these, these uh, afflictions and these diseases and things are, are no more. And then he sits down at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and begins to instruct his disciples. He goes up away from the crowds, up in the mountain, and he sits down and he begins to instruct the disciples in these things. And he begins with the Beatitudes, he begins with these pronouncements of blessing. He begins by giving us an understanding of those who have God's favor on them. He doesn't start with what we should do, but he starts with who we are. And this is an important thing for us to, to get our minds around as we study the Beatitudes. If there's one thing that I would say that you should take away from our five weeks studying the Beatitudes, it's that uh, God's favor comes first. God pronounces his favor on us, and then out of that we are compelled to do all that which he commands us. So, Jesus starts his Beatitudes. He wants his disciples to hear this. God's favor first. God does, then we do second. What we do doesn't earn God's favor. God's favor is given to us, then we're empowered to live lives that, that honor Him. This is of utmost importance and will be throughout the rest of our time in the Sermon on the Mount. However long it takes us, we'll, be, we'll spend uh, a significant amount of time coming back to this theme. God's favor comes first, and then He empowers us to do that which He commands. So one of the key understandings to looking at the Beatitudes and applying them is to recognize that these are not character qualities or demeanors that describe one believer or another. We don't look at someone and say, boy, you're meek, or wow, you're mourning. We say that these are character qualities or demeanors that describe every believer. Now, maybe to different varying degrees, but every believer, in some sense, is working these out in his or her life. And then we've talked about the fact that the Beatitudes build. They build on one another. This is not a this is not a, 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 a again a one take one and, and and pass it down type mentality. This is a uh, those who are poor in spirit. And let's just look at them. Those who are poor in spirit, they understand their spiritual bankruptcy. That's what it means to be poor in spirit to understand your spiritual bankruptcy. And then they view their spiritual bankruptcy as a result of this sin that inhabits them. The, the, uh, the, in, in verse 4, right? And they mourn over that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then in a posture of mourning over sin and how it's bankrupt, and they re- re- recognize and relating to others flows out of this assessment. You see, I am bankrupt, I am spiritually bankrupt, I'm apart from God, apart from Jesus, I am nothing, I, I, am, I am nothing apart from Him, and then we begin to actually assess ourselves properly in light of that, that is meekness. And then because of this proper assessment, we look at ourselves and we say, there's nothing good in me, I'm, I'm mourning over the sin, and I'm, I'm properly assessing myself out of that, and then we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, the things that God tells us about what we should do, and who we are, and how we should live, we begin to we begin to hunger and thirst for those things. Again, not as a burdensome thing, but as something that 
directly shows us how we reflect who God is. And then the outworking begins. We see, we saw last week, as we looked at verses 7 and 8, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But those who the Beatitudes describe, they are merciful. They're seeking to relieve the effects of sin in their world. They have a proper assessment of themselves. They understand what it means that they're sinful creatures. And then they see others also in the same boat and say, brother, sister, how can I relieve the situation which you find yourself in? And then they're pure in heart, right? Like verse 8 says, they're pure in heart. They have undivided attention and undivided affection for who God is. They understand and seek to keep His commands and subsequently exist for others and set aside self. So these are ideas that build. These are ideas that build, and we'll see this morning again that these, these things continue to build for us. And Jesus wants to build this understanding of what it looks like to be a new creation. What does it mean to be someone who has been transformed because God's favor is placed on them? So the final two Beatitudes in this morning, verses 9 and 10, and 11 and 12, we look at these two as a, a sort of a, a, a commentary on verse 10. So let's read these together. Let's read the whole text together to see them all together playing together. Verse 2 of Matthew chapter 5. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, we're going to think through verse 9, 10, 11, and 12 this morning. These last two. And then that's going to launch us into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go out from, the, from, from these, these few verses and we're going, to, we're going to launch into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in the, the upcoming weeks. So, look with me. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is, peace is a straightforward, relatively simple concept. Earlier on in the Beatitudes, we saw some words that probably don't inhabit our vocabulary very regularly. But towards the end, we get to merciful, we get to purity, we get to, we get to uh, peace. And we say these things sound a little more familiar to us. But peace, although it's something that's relatively common or an idea that, that, that we can get our minds around, it's something that regularly eludes us. It's not something that, that we, we, we regularly find ourselves in a state of peace. And the question is why. We ask that question a lot throughout this time together in the Beatitudes. Why? I think that the previous Beatitudes give us some clues. We'll talk about those in a minute. But, but James, we studied James earlier this year. James offers us a significant amount of help. If you look at uh, the, the, the book of James in its entirety... Um, it offers a lot of help for us, but consider with me just James 4, 1 through 3. James writes this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
This is a descriptor of someone who is not a, not someone who is a peacemaker, right? So maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel at peace. Maybe you're not at peace with someone or something in your world. There's something going on and you just don't feel a whole lot of peace. Maybe this morning, for example, you're trying to get out of the house, the kids weren't cooperating. Not a whole lot of peace typically in that situation. Maybe you woke up this morning and realized that you had made plans this afternoon and those plans were different from the plans of your spouse. And then you had a conflict. Maybe you woke up and felt discouraged by the way that your week went last week. It just wasn't a good week at work or wherever at home. Maybe you, maybe you found yourself in a situation that, that was less than desirable. And you were feeling a significant amount of anxiety because tomorrow is Monday and the cycle starts over. If we think about Jesus' words in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 9, and the fixed in these Beatitudes, if we think about these words, blessed are the peacemakers, we can see that he's interested in his hearers thinking about a couple of things. Let me, let me give you these. First is just a proper assessment of ourselves and the world around us. Whatever the outworking of that assessment is. A proper assessment of ourselves and the outworking of that assessment. This is contained within the first few Beatitudes, right? We talked about these. The poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness. These are all predicated, these are all built on the a proper assessment of, of who we are. Think about, think about war, just what you know about war, right? Nobody goes to war without resources. Nobody goes to war without resources. Uh, the U.S. entered World War I in April of 1917, and by the time the war ended in November of 1918, the U.S. had spent $32 billion on World War I. That figure today, that doesn't look at $32 billion, whatever. That, that figure today would probably be somewhere in the range of $500 billion. Germany, in the same war, spent somewhere in, by today's standards, somewhere in the trillion dollar range. You don't go to war without resources. You don't go to war without resources. Again, those figures probably don't blow our minds, although they should. A trillion dollars should, should really blow your mind. But, but they probably don't use like, okay, a trillion dollars, whatever. But consider the fact that $32 billion in the U.S. represented 52% of the U.S.'s gross national product in 1918. That's a significant, whatever, economics aside, you don't go to war without resources. And if you're an individual who understands and assesses yourself, in light of your sin, you say, apart from God, I have nothing good in me. There's nothing within me. I can't operate in a way that, 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 that is honoring to God. You won't go to war. You won't go to war. You don't have the resources to do it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking doesn't happen when you ignore your poverty of spirit and your sin and make a correct assessment of yourself. If you did, if you did make a correct assessment of yourself, you see that entering with no war with no resources. You're a skinny 12-year-old in the playground uh, provoking an NFL offensive lineman. This is what you're doing. You're picking a fight with someone who is 12 times your size. When we see ourselves as the skinny 12-year-old, we don't provoke someone much larger than us. So first, then, comes this proper assessment of ourselves, and, the, and then the outworking of that assessment. So second, then, would be a proper assessment of the world around us. We have to think about what's going on in the world around us. What is happening? What is taking place? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The peacemaker has only one concern, and it is the glory of God amongst men. 
If we view ourselves correctly, if we see our purpose, our interest no longer resides with ourselves, but with God's glory. No longer does our primary interest reside in ourselves, but in God's glory. Go back up to verse 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like we said a few weeks ago, we will hunger and thirst to carry out all that God commands us in Scripture through the power of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To see God's commands and to uh, adhere to them. We want to find commands burdensome then. But a great joy and a satisfaction in to the desires of our soul. Why? Because we're reflecting God and living in step with His character as it's revealed to us in His Word. And this is, this is really important for us as a church. Jesus says that by living the way that He outlines in the Sermon on the Mount, we are painting this kingdom portrait, right? We've used this metaphor, we're painting this kingdom portrait. We're showing the world what the kingdom of heaven looks like by living together in community in harmony with one another, living together as those who uh, uh, represent the Beatitudes. The world should be looking at us and seeing a glimpse, it's an imperfect glimpse, but they should be seeing a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? They should look at us and see it. Therefore, all the Beatitudes, everything we're going to consider in the Sermon on the Mount from this point forward is not optional, but it's necessary. 100% necessary. There's no part of this that we get to pick and choose out of. It is 100% necessary. Every single piece. This is what it means to paint the kingdom portrait. The temptation for us is to become entrenched in our day-to-day. We get bogged down by the things that happen throughout the courses of our day. We put our heads down and get through it. Jen Wilkin writes this. We will not wake up in 10 years from now and find we have passively taken on the character of God. If we don't understand the things that God commands us in His Word, we won't, we won't look more like Jesus. We won't look like God intended us to. The portrait will not be painted without discipline, effort, time, investment. The list goes on. And peacemaking, then subsequently, verse 9, peacemaking will not happen if we're oblivious to the effects of sin on our world. Peacemaking will not happen if we're oblivious to the effects of sin on us and our world. So think with me. You've been doing this throughout the course of our time. You've got to think with me about these things. What do you discipline yourself to do? Just ask yourself that question. What do you discipline yourself to do? Wake up early and exercise? Maybe. Continued education for your job? Do the dishes at the end of a long day? Set your phone down and play with the kids before bedtime? Those are good things. Do you discipline yourself to develop your understanding of who God is and how you reflect Him? Where do you exert effort in your exercise, in your work, in your hobbies? Do you exert effort in your understanding of who God is and how you reflect Him? Where do you spend your time? Thinking about your financial goals? Wondering where your next month's rent is coming from? Do you spend your time developing your understanding of who God is and how you're called to reflect Him? Where do you invest? Your body? Your retirement account? Your house? Do you invest in your understanding of who God is and how you are called to reflect Him? I hope you saw a pattern there. Peacemaking then flows from this correct assessment of oneself and of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, 
His disciples, Jesus' disciples, keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than to inflict it on others. They maintain fellowship where others would break it off. They renounce all self-assertion and quietly suffer in the face of hatred and wrong. In so doing, they overcome evil with good and establish the peace of God in the midst of a world of war and of hate. We can see then close ties with meekness. If we look back at the page to verse 5, we can see close ties with meekness. For many of us this morning, we're going to call a situation where we're compelled, we're feeling compelled to respond because someone has slighted us, someone has slandered us, someone has put us in a position where we are suffering, and that's spurred on by nothing short of hate. But this is the truth contained within this beatitude. In Christ, you are a peacemaker. In Christ, you are a peacemaker. Peace with God has been made on your behalf. Big, big point here. Peace with God has been made on your behalf through the shed blood of Jesus. And in and through that, you have been made a peacemaker to make peace. You might sit there and say, yeah, but you don't understand my situation. You don't understand my boss is such a jerk. You don't get it. But you don't understand how much of a jerk my boss is. You don't know how mean my spouse can be. You don't get how rebellious my kids are. But there aren't any yeah buts in this text. There just aren't. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they're called sons of God. Now there's a caveat here, and we have to explore this caveat. There is such a thing as cheap or easy peace. There is such a thing as cheap or easy peace. And what do I mean by that? I mean that when we ignore sin that someone has committed against us, or we ignore the fact that we've committed against sin against someone else, and we do that in the name of just keeping the peace, this isn't the type of peace that Jesus is talking about. This is not the type of peace that Jesus is talking about. This is cheap, this is easy peace. Our, our North Dakota culture in particular, like, can, can fall into this trap very easily. We can fall into this trap very easily. I hear pretty regularly, I just don't like conflict. I don't like conflict. We need to learn, okay, body of Christ, right now, church, we need to learn to have healthy conflict. If you're bottling it up, what you're going to do is you're going to walk out of the doors and you're going to find something, you're going to find the first person that you can vent on and you're going to vent on them. Instead of going to the source and, and talking directly to the person who has slighted you or wronged you. Or you're going to bottle up the fact you're going to feel the twinge of conviction over sin that you've committed against someone else and you're going to, you're going to walk out and you're going to think to yourself, I'm going to suppress this, I'm going to push this down so don't have to deal with it. This is cheap, easy peace. This is not the highway to the understanding of God's favor as pronounced in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 5. When we ignore your, the fact that we've sinned against someone, if we ignore, ignore the fact that someone has sinned against us, then we've bought cheap, temporary peace. This is not lasting peace. This is not everlasting peace that Jesus is talking about here in the Beatitudes. We can see healthy conflict in the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't avoid conflict. Right? If you read the Gospels, you see this guy, the religious leaders, he doesn't say to the religious leaders, hey guys, I know you're after me, I know you want to kill me, why don't you guys just go over there for a little while and just, 
Just take a deep breath. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He goes right at them. He calls them vipers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He's in the temple flipping tables. That's what he's doing in the, in the gospel. He is not buying cheap peace. He understood that the peace that he was going to bring about came at a very high cost. You're trying to, boy, I don't, I don't like that. I, just, I don't like conflict. It's so, I don't know. Descriptor. Our two-year-old says, that makes me sad. That's, that's, that's what I feel. Two-year-old self says, oh, that makes me sad. We bottle stuff up, we bottle the inside. Here's a couple of things to think about, just healthy conflict, okay? Conflict is, conflict is something that we can do, um, and we can do it well as a church. We don't have to ignore stuff. We can do it well. First, listen. James, again, writes in, in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Here, see that. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Quick. Quick to hear. Listen. First step. Listen. Second, no, Beatitudes right here, set aside your own agenda. Make a proper assessment of who you are. Set aside your agenda. You have an agenda, it's probably self-focused. Set it aside. David Powelson writes this, Peaceable people lay aside criticism, self-justification, scoring points, touchiness to offenses, these moral weeds, the filthiness and rampant wickedness that come from the anger of man, get plucked up by the roots and begin to wilt. Sweet fruit begins to grow as the word of God and other good fruits take root. Teachableness, forbearance, kindness, contentment, and gratitude for the inexpressible gift and an outlook of charity rather than peevishness, God of peace, make it peaceable. Third, then. So first, listen. Second, set aside your own agenda. This is really practical. This is probably the most practical I've ever been. Third, speak to the offense, not to the offender. Where we see Jesus doing this in the life of Jesus. Our tendency is to attack the individual rather than feel, uh, rather than, uh, rather than, uh, or and then when we feel attacked, right? Our tendency is to attack the individual when we feel attacked, and so we just avoid conflict altogether. So I feel attacked. I'm just going to avoid conflict. It's over. This is not a healthy or helpful response. Speak to the wrong that's been done, not the one who's done it. Question: Look at this. Is this process easy? No. Is there pain involved? Yes. What part of the Christian life that we've explored together so far in the Sermon on the Mount has been easy? None? Zero? Zero percent? We gotta get out of the mindset. Let's move out of the mindset that, that this is gonna be easy stuff for us, that we're just gonna get this, we're just gonna go forward, we're just gonna be like, yes, everything is good and right, and everything is all better now. This is, a, this is a difficult reality for us. Consider the one who died for you. This is difficult. Consider the one who died for you. Consider the one who made peace with God on your behalf. This is Christ Jesus. God did not say, these people keep sinning against me. Oh, I'll just, I'll just, just, just go do your thing for a little while so I can just have some peace and quiet. I'll just put up with it. Rather, our sin against God resulted in, our sin against God resulted in violent conflict. It resulted in violent conflict, which ended in the death of his son. 
It's not a passive solution. God didn't get all passive aggressive with us. He went to the source and took care of it. It was costly. It wasn't easy, but it made peace. Not cheap, temporary peace, everlasting peace. Let me give you one more example. Marriage. Many marriages, maybe yours, maybe yours, operates on this sort of barter system. Right? Kind of start to operate in this barter system after a few years of marriage. When one spouse gets to do something they want to do, while the other waits and builds up some credit so that they can go do what they want to do. Or buy what they want to buy, or whatever it might be. So they go back and forth in this barter system, sort of creating sort of this pseudo-peace, right? And as long as the last activity that the one individual got to do is equivalent to the next activity that the other individual wants to do, everything's fine. We're all good. This isn't a one-flesh union. This is a cohabitation. Also, when party one party feels slighted then, like they get the short end of the stick, this has been where we get conflict. So that last thing that you did, you got to spend a lot more money, you got to take a lot more time, and look what I got. I got nothing. And we have conflict. Again, David Paulson, I quoted him earlier, he writes this, People in unhealthy conflict are hypocrites. They dish out global condemnation while feeling outraged whenever they mistakenly criticize regarding some tiny detail of the story. They grouse about a spouse spending $20 on some perceived frivolity while not thinking twice about spending $500 on their own hobbies. This marital barter system looks like a peaceable solution to the world, but it falls short of lasting peace. It's cheap peace. The solution is to die to self. The solution is to die to self. It's to see your spouse's interest as more important than your own. Your flourishing in this life is not the most important thing. Seek to elevate and cause your spouse to flourish. Imitate Christ in this. Make peace. Finally then, okay, so look at the end of verse 9. This is the promise, and we'll move on from this beatitude. This is the promise. They shall be called sons of God. Those who make peace are God's children. Why? Why? Because they understand that peace was made with God on their behalf. We're just going to run through what Paul writes to us in, in, the, in the letter to the Romans. Paul writes in Romans 5, chapter 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10 of the same chapter. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And then flip over a few chapters to chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Peace with God has been made through Jesus Christ. We are no longer at war with God. We are in Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ that bears witness to our parentage. We are God's children. Now, we've been given the message of reconciliation. Paul writes that to the church in Corinth. In other words, we've been made peacemakers as God's children. 
last phrase in Romans 8.16 will move us to the next beatitude perfectly. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is it, this is the end point, this is where Jesus decides to finalize the Beatitudes, his pronouncements of God's favor. Friends, if we're living as new creations, if we're living as those who are described here in the Beatitudes, viewing the previous seven Beatitudes as absolute requirements rather than convenience-based activities is essential. You can, if you're looking at the previous seven, you can fully expect, this is the logical conclusion of all of these things, you can fully expect if you are poor in spirit, more, more meek, humble and thirst for righteousness, or merciful, pure in heart, and a peacemaker, that verse 10 is coming. This is more than societal persecution also. Verses 11 and 12 give us this additional information. Blessed are you when the others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you, false and like God. This is personal. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So, the, so for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice the qualifier in verse 10. For righteousness sake. This isn't just because someone doesn't like you. Because your personality is this is because you are exemplifying all of the things that came previously. Qualities that seem weird to the world, like all of these do, they seem totally strange, they seem upside down, they seem completely bizarre. This is what the church is exemplifying, and this is why you will be persecuted. Post-New Testament, right after the book of Acts, those are the first century, second century churches. Uh, these were, they, they were charged with a whole host of things by the Roman Empire, by wherever they resided. Cannibalism, incest, atheism, hatred for humanity. They were, they were condemned as cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. They were condemned because of incest, because they would refer to each other as brother and sister. They were called atheists because they denied the pantheon of Roman gods. They said there's only one God whom we serve. They, were said, they said they were told that they hated humanity because they saw societal practices as being contrary to the qualities of, of following Jesus, like given the ones given in the Beatitudes. And on these grounds, many people were martyred. Early in the history of the church, many people were martyred. But something that blows my mind is that in the 20th century, just the previous century that we came out of, more people were martyred than in any century previously. People were being persecuted for righteousness' sake in our day and age. Early in the 20th century, in the heel of two major massacres carried out against Christians in China, a missionary by the name of Jack Vinson was visiting a church when he was taken hostage and he faced death, put a gun to his head. One of his captors said to him, I'm going to kill you, aren't you afraid? And he said, kill me if you wish, I'll go straight to God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the promise given to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And again, Paul writes in Romans 8 that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided that we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. John Stott writes this, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. So, in conclusion this morning, we don't like this idea of suffering. I would submit to you that actually our entire society is built on the understanding or the notion that we shouldn't have to. This is the way that the church is magnificently different than the world. We are not those who are seeking our own comfort in this life. Here this morning, and you're prepared to suffer as Christ suffered. Or is our whole life oriented to avoiding it? If it's built to avoid suffering, let's be plain. Let, let's be plain. You're not following Jesus. If your life is built to avoid suffering, you are not following Jesus. Provided that we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. Well, that's harsh. Maybe I didn't say it, God did. It's not an easy thing to hear or to live it out. We don't, this is not a seeking of our own suffering, though, either. But it's an understanding and a complete knowledge that it's going to happen. We are going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a promise. We can be sure that if we are poor in spirit, if we mourn, if we're meek, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we're merciful, if we're pure in heart, if we're peacemakers, then we will be persecuted. And herein lies one of the main reasons we can't take each of these in a vacuum or view them as suggestions or other commands, because by doing so, we will always choose to avoid persecution and difficulty. We will always choose it. When we sense that the world thinks we're strange, when we feel the pressures to be like the world press in on us, even to the point of death, we will quickly abandon what makes us different, what sets us apart. So when these things become convenience-based activities, when we look at the Beatitudes and say, when I get around to it, they become convenience-based activities rather than blood-bought identities. We aren't following Jesus. We aren't seeking the painted portrait of the kingdom of heaven. Whether we're blazing our own trail, building our own kingdom, we're saying, my kingdom come, my will be done. So as we wrap up our time in the Beatitudes and move on to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we should note, like we did, that all of these characteristics find their fullest expression in Jesus. This is the hope in which we have. As we look at these and we say, well, I can't keep these. But we can keep them because of Christ and what He did. Will you always live as someone who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who's merciful, who's pure in heart, who's a peacemaker? No, we won't. So what good is it? Jesus was these things described to us in the Beatitudes, so we don't have to be. Jesus was these things perfectly and the Beatitudes, so that we don't have to be, and yet, and yet, because He was these things, He gives us the power to do them also. In Christ we are made new. We're delivered from sin and death. 
and given the Spirit to live according to all that God commands. So just listen to this. So listen, I'm going to run through these. We're going to talk about how Jesus exemplifies each of these perfectly. John Newton said, and he wrote, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he said, We are great sinners, but we have a great Savior. Listen to the greatness of Christ. Jesus is poor in spirit. He emptied himself, becoming a servant. We now have the ability to see just how spiritually bankrupt we are apart from God. Jesus mourns. He saw the sin around him in the world and was grieved at its effects. We now have the ability to see the sin and then our sin and the sin of the world correctly, perceive its destructive capability and how it's our deepest need and that we have to have it eradicated. Jesus is meek. He didn't demand his rights even when they were his to have. We now have the ability to relinquish our rights because we can correctly assess ourselves and the impact that it has on how we relate to our world. Jesus hungers and thirsts for right. He longed to do what the Father's will. We now have the ability to adhere to that which God demands of us, not as slaves, but as friends. Jesus is merciful. He dealt with the effects of sin by showing compassion and forgiveness here on earth and by dealing with sin and death once and for all on the cross. We now have the ability to deal with the effects of sin by forgiving those who wrong us and showing compassion to those who are beat up and broken by sin's devastating effects. Jesus is pure in heart, giving his undivided affection to his Father and his undivided attention to his purposes. We now have the ability to be undivided in our affection for God, not mixing it with our own passions or pursuits or desires. And we also have the ability to uh, undividedly give God our attention and to exist for others and not ourselves. <coughs> Jesus is a peacemaker. He didn't shy away from conflict, but uses it to point to a peace that was greater than the temporary quiet, and his work on the cross established that peace. We now have the ability to make peace by setting aside the pursuit of our own kingdom and living in God's already established one, inviting others into his family through the peace that was made through Jesus Christ. Jesus was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He lived perfectly as the Father demands and endured slander, torture, and death. On our behalf, we now have the ability to, like Paul says in Colossians 1, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. Not that we add to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, but we participate together in it knowing that the kingdom is our reward. So we have a choice this morning as we finish our time. We have a choice this morning as we've heard, as we've thought about the Beatitudes. We come to a crossroads now. We're telling you now, you're coming to a crossroads. Option one, in futility... Try to build your own kingdom that will burn up and blow away by seeking your own interests and taking God's word as suggestion and applying it when it's convenience. Option one. Option two. In the power of the Spirit of Christ living in God's established kingdom. Seeking to totally obey all that He has graciously commanded us. Living for others no matter 
no matter how inconvenient or costly that might be. The Beatitudes then give us the tools to paint this kingdom portrait. The Beatitudes give us the tools, the paintbrush, the easel, the paint, gives us the tools to paint this kingdom portrait. When we ignore the pronouncement of God's favor and the Beatitudes, when we look at these things and take them in a vacuum, we discard the tools and we make a messy finger painting that will soon be forgotten. But when we live as those who God has pronounced His favor upon, we'll make use of these tools and we will paint a brilliant masterpiece, a kingdom portrait that the world will find strange. They'll look at it and say, That's weird. But it will be beautiful to its citizens because it's what's intended by their kings. Let's pray.